Holy Spirit, I pray for a move of faith in the room this morning. I pray that you would give us uh, the approach to life that unlocks our purpose, our promise, our fruitfulness. I pray, Father, that we'd be caught up in the attitude of faith. I pray, Lord, that we would live uh, without fear, uh, with freedom, without any unreasonable encumbrance. Uh, Set our hearts free, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Faith Faith is what? Faith is an attitude. Uh, let, let me ask that question one more time. Faith is what? Attitude. Faith is an attitude. Like, oh, it's an attitude. It's not that attitude. It's, it's an attitude. Uh, faith is an attitude. And largely, that attitude of faith is what the Bible is about. We are in a, a sermon series on the Bible, by which I mean like the whole Bible. We're going to take a look at the Bible from beginning to end. We're going to take a look at it from 30,000 feet not getting mired into, you know, the fine details, but really, what's the book about in large strokes? And the book is largely about the attitude of faith, not, not, not what you believe in, not doctrine, but about how to go about believing in the things you want to believe in, in the things you actually want to trust in. It's a very practical how-to book in that sense, and a lot of the stories in Scripture are about how to do the attitude of faith. How to become a believer, uh, in, in other words. Uh, the world desperately needs the attitude of faith, I think, because everybody in the world is afraid. Everybody in the world is afraid of something, is insecure about something, is, is worried about something, and the world needs faith, which is the opposite of fear. Fear says something terrible could happen here. And faith says God could do something incredible here. The world really needs the attitude of faith. And what we need to share with the world more than anything else is the attitude of faith. Right? Not not what we believe in necessarily. We don't need to tell the world uh, what to believe as much as we need to believe and let the world see what that is like. That's the first step anyway, because you don't come to believe the right things unless you give yourself to the attitude of faith. That's one of the interesting realities that the Bible addresses uh, again and again. Faith attitude is what helps us find God. Help Faith attitude is what helps us understand God once we encounter Him. You have to have the attitude of faith to hang with Him for, for a long period of time. It's an interesting thing, faith. So the Bible, uh, the stories in the Bible, don't really begin with what you would consider doctrine. They don't, they don't define for you exactly what you should believe in. The stories in the Bible begin with characterizing what faith attitude is like sort of characterizing, mostly through storytelling, what it's like to live out faith, to sort of walk with that precious kind of attitude that we call faith. Uh, You could consider it a mindset if you want to, a slant toward things. Uh, And and, in keeping with the Eden story that we talked about uh, last week, the Bible spends very little time convincing us that there is a God. 
doesn't really spend much ink on that, uh, but instead spends a lot of time instructing us how to walk with that God, how to live with that God in this world, how to operate life uh, with God. It's a document that instructs us on how to make life an adventure of trusting God. It's a document that instructs us on how to make life an adventure in trusting God. So that we're influential in the world, the world improves, and so that our eternity is bright. Uh, and to walk in faith is not just a walk in the park. The Bible is clear about that. Okay, so faith attitude is really important, which means we need to warm up our attitude a little bit. So everybody roll your shoulders, everybody get loose, do some deep breathing, get some attitude uh, going. Um, who, uh, we've been talking a lot about like purpose and, and mission. Who, who has something, uh, or how many of you have something in mind that, that you want to accomplish this year, say? You know, some, something good that you want to accomplish this year. Really, three people raise their hands. You guys suck. <laughs> Come on. Get something you want to do this year. All right. So some person with attitude, stand up and just tell me in one sentence what you want to accomplish this year. Come on. This is your moment to worship. Julie? You want to get your captain's license. She just bought a 65-foot sailboat. Want to get your, you got to stay standing. So the proper response... To a statement of faith attitude like that is, come on! That's the proper response. It's in the Bible somewhere, I think. That's the proper response. So, so say it again. What do you want to do this year? All right, excellent. Good job, good job. All right, someone else. Who, who wants, who's got something? Karen, really loud. She wants to heal a blind person and do at least two other miracles of healing this year. Oh, come on. Come on. It, it's, it, it's, it's good with a gesture, too. Come on. Everybody practice that. What, what, one, one, more, uh, one more person. I'm going to have you do it, honey. Okay, go ahead. Come on. Let's, let, let's, say, let's say it on three. One, two, three. Okay, I like that. And everybody on the worship team is going to write six original new worship songs. All right, everybody on the worship team, stand up. Everybody on the worship team, stand up. You're going to write six new songs, original songs. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's 48 new songs. And two CDs, two CDs worth of music. All right, on the count of three to these people. One, two, three. There you go. All right. So turn to the person next to you. And even if, even if you're not a regular at this church, just tell the person next to you one good thing uh, that you're going to accomplish this year. And then the person's proper response will be, come on. Come on. All right, so go ahead. Turn to the person next to you. We're warming up. We're warming up attitude. You got to have attitude at church, people. Ooh. Yeah. I'm feeling it. That's good. 
I'm hearing some yes. I've heard at least one bonsai. That's good. I will accept that. No, make sure you do it the other way too. The other person says something so that they can get a good, come on. Kayton. I just, I just, I just want to show you how men do it. Uh, I, I just want to show you how men do it when uh, when women aren't looking. So, so what's what's one good thing that you wanna you wanna accomplish this year, Guyton? Buy a house in Maui. Buy a house in Maui. Come on! Come on! And then it's the bro hug, right? Which is which involves pounding. Bro hug. Yeah, all right. I just felt that needed to be demonstrated. It ain't real if you ain't bruised. That's attitude sharing is what that is. And, you know, we do, we do little warm-up drills like that in church just to kind of get across that really... It's about sharing an attitude. It's about sharing an attitude that's anchored in the Lord, but working that attitude out in life daily, sharing it with other people, being contagious where that attitude is concerned, that's what we're about because your attitude is the most contagious thing about you. The Bible is a story about an attitude that changes everything, and that attitude has caused faith and particularly a faith that's anchored in the good character of the Lord. All right, so we started in the book of Genesis last week, and we did uh, the first 11 chapters, which, uh, which are really the, the earliest stories that the human race has about how we got started. And the earliest stories that the human race has happen to be stories about the human race and God, about how God creates uh, about what has gone wrong. And when we, when we checked out of uh, the beginning of Genesis last week, we leave a world that is calling out to God but is sort of confused. It's a world that knows about God but has drifted into pantheism. Uh, we, we hunger for God, but in some ways we have forgotten uh, the, the specifics about the one true God. So we start turning people into gods. We start worshiping ancestors. We take very heroic, accomplished people, and over the generations, we begin to worship those people. And you, you might not have realized this before, but the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis actually describe how this happened. And it, it's amazing to me that the human race passed down these stories. Of course, first they were all oral traditions. In order to remember what we were forgetting <laughs> and and to remind ourselves how we were getting mixed up. So the backdrop is uh, that the world has gone from uh, knowing about the one true God to kind of developing all of these little gods, some of whom are echoes of the one true God and some of whom are deifications of ancestors and stuff like that. The world has become pantheistic, many gods. Um, the world has become a fatalistic it's become caste-driven when the story opens uh, in, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, the story that we're going to pick up today. Uh, every culture has their own God. In fact, every household 
uh, in, in Middle Eastern cultures tends to have what they call the household gods, right? Your particular deity, maybe a little stone figurine that you keep in, in your home, uh, the god that your family cherishes. We know it's important to cherish a god, but we've kind of forgotten. So every family is sort of holding on to their own. Uh, families pass down a god, you know, but we've drifted from the truth. That's, that's the situation uh, in the area of the world that came to be called the Fertile Crescent, uh, the birth uh, place of human civilization, and that's kind of where our story opens. You're, in, in that culture, uh, in that day and age, we're talking about, you know, like 3,500, 4,000 years ago, you were who you were born to be. You were born in a certain situation. You were born in a certain uh, people group. Uh, your God was handed down to you from your family. You didn't change your station, right? You didn't raise yourself up by your bootstraps. You were born low class. You were born into farming. You were born into nomad agriculture and keeping flocks. Maybe you were born to royalty, but but where you were born, how you were born, determined everything about you. And eventually that developed into caste systems, into a social structure that became rigid. You never changed your social position. You were defined by your caste. You know what that word caste is? You might be familiar with it from, say, um, Hinduism, the study of Hinduism. But if you need to get your mind around what human civilization was like during this period, that we're examining today, you can think of Hinduism. Thousands of gods, each one a little bit different. Somewhere in there is the echo of the story of the one true God, but you weren't thinking about it too hard because you were just born into a situation and boom, there it is. Castes were becoming rigid. You were born high class or you were born low class or you were born untouchable and that was you. And your religious system just affirmed that. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. Spiritualism was vague. It was important, but, you know, you neither questioned it nor explored it nor developed it. Nothing changed. You got it? Anybody ever gone through a period of life where you felt like that? It's like, it seems like I'm just fated to have this slot. I'm just fated to have this sort of life. Nothing is changing for me. Anybody had that experience? I think it's just one of the fundamental human experiences. I think a lot of us know exactly what that is like. And that's what the whole world was like, basically, uh, in these days. Uh, long about 4,000 years ago. And then Genesis 12 happens. All right, in the middle of Genesis, we get a story that would change the lives of billions of people and in some ways would just alter the trajectory of all human history from that point. We get the story of Abraham. First, he's called Abram. Uh, many of you know in the story, in the middle of it, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means, you know, father of many or father of nations. Um, so typically he's referred to as Abraham. The story opens in Genesis chapter 12. It lasts for about 10 chapters in the book of Gen uh, Genesis, depending on how you count. Uh, so I have my big Bible today. 
This is why I'm the senior pastor. My Bible is bigger than yours. So uh, we get the story of the Tower of Babel. We get some genealogies. And then, boom, Genesis chapter 12. The Lord said to Abram, we don't know anything about Abram at this point except he exists. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Everybody say, boom. The sentence that changed everything. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. It continues. And I will make you into a great nation, literally a great people. And I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing to all these people. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You, young man, are about to change human history. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Uh, we know from the genealogies that Lot is his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran, his home, his hometown. There it is. What What'd you say? What? What? There you go. Come on, 75-year-old hippie dude. Get in the bus and take off. And, and Abraham uh, sets out. Oh, so, so God calls this guy, Abraham, calls him out of a pantheistic culture. His family would have had his little household God. We have, we have no idea whether Abraham you know, knew the stories of the one true God at that point or if he had drifted around. We know his culture had become pantheistic. Um, and then the Lord calls him and says, Abram, I got something to tell you. In a culture in which everybody sort of chose their own God, boom, we get a story of a God choosing a person. That itself was a revolution. But the way this God approached this fellow was the real revolution. He said to Abram, and I'm paraphrasing here. Come on. Come on. I'm going to take you out of what you know. I'm going to take you out of the drift. I'm going to take you out of the vagueness. I'm going to take you out of the confusion. And dot, dot, dot. I'm going to make something of you. It's a pattern that becomes truly familiar in all of the stories uh, about God and people. It always starts with a call to purpose. Right? The Lord doesn't show up and say to Abram, Hey, I'm God. I exist. Let me prove myself to you. Let me give you a lot of demonstrations. No. When God shows up in a life, it almost always goes like this. I'm God. I'm going to make something of you. We've said this a thousand times uh, over the past six months. When Jesus calls someone, he always calls that person to a purpose. Where did Jesus come up with that? Well, he came up with it from the very beginning. When God calls someone, he always calls that person to a purpose. It starts with a call to purpose. Write down a note. You have to know your purpose. You have to know your outcome, what outcome you're pursuing. You have to know the reason why 
you're traveling in the direction that you're traveling. That is fundamental to the journey that God calls us on. So God calls Abram to a purpose, and then he does this hugely important thing. He puts Abraham on a journey. And insofar as the Bible is a story about how to walk with faith attitude in the world, the first thing we know about how to walk with faith attitude is that you're going to have to walk with faith attitude. Faith is always a journey. Faith is always a process that you live out in a direction of purpose. Always, always, always. It has been that from the beginning. And in a world at this time, that was just a matter of walking in circles. You are who you were born to be. Nothing ever changed. Nothing ever changed. The first thing that God injects into human history here is, no, no, life is a line. You're not walking in circles. You're walking somewhere. There's a purpose out there for you. It's going to unfold across generations. You have no idea how important it is, but you got to go get it. Get off the track and get on a line. That's what God injects into human lives. That's the first thing that we learn about how faith journeying works. It's a revolution. That's what the book is about. Faith journeys. Faith journeys whether it's God calling Abraham or Jesus calling disciples or whatever. God calls you to purpose, and he calls you on a journey. A journey where? Well, God will show you on the way. <laughs> Go to a land that I'll show you. It's a faith journey. Not a, not a journey journey. It's a faith journey. It's going to be filled with some uncertainty. If there were no uncertainty, then it wouldn't be called faith. It would be called Google Maps. Well, there are some uncertainty in Google Maps, particularly when you're trying to navigate Honolulu, but you know what I mean. Um, <clears throat> Abram would have things to overcome on his faith journey, as is true of all faith journeys. There would be uncertainty, there would be danger, there would be challenges of time in that, you know, it took so long that Abraham started to believe that it was too late, really, to accomplish what he was supposed to accomplish to get where he was going. There would be a great deal of costliness because there is no faith without sacrifice. We're learning all of this as we go. In the story of Abraham, God is, is defining for us, or the humans that pass this story on are, are helping us understand that faith requires challenge and testing, and it's, the faith journey is kind of designed to be hard. And we're learning all of that as we begin to read through the middle chapters of, of Genesis. The faith journey makes people feel like an alien, you know, Abram would go to a land in which he was the alien. All of this stuff we begin to learn as we read through the middle chapters of Genesis. And then there's this wonderful bit about Abraham being blessed to be a blessing. Be a, he's going to be a blessing to who? Well, pretty much everyone. I'll, I'll make you a, a, a big people. Uh, I will bless those who bless you. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Pretty big, pretty big promise. When God gives blessing 
to you, uh, it's the nature of that blessing to always be shared. There's so much to say about this prototypical faith journey that Abram goes on, and at 30,000 feet as we look at the Bible, we can't say everything, but here are two things that we learn in the course of the next cha 10 chapters. It is a faith journey. There's a lot of trusting involved to pull it off, a lot of uncertainty and trust, a lot of risk. We learn that interacting with God, from the very first stories, we learn that interacting with God is all about trust. That never changes. And we also learn that the faith journey is a strange trip. Strange trip. Everybody say, yo, it's a strange trip. Tell it to somebody. So this is how it goes. We're going to go through 10 chapters of Genesis. I'm going to say just a, a few words about uh, some of the, uh, you know, the, the, the key passages between chapter 12 and chapter 14, uh, and then we'll wrap up. So here we go. Uh, Abram takes off. He leaves Haran. Uh, he takes Lot and uh, just a, a few people from his immediate household with him, leaves everything that he knows, and he heads out to the promised land. All of that happens in chapter 12. Before chapter 12 is done, Abram is already in the promised land. The journey to the promised land actually doesn't take uh, very long. It's just like, boop, he's there. That's not, that's not what the journey is about. You can kind of get where you're going, but it's not a destination. It's a process, it turns out, because no sooner does Abram get to the promised land, he camps uh, around this area that would become known as Bethel. Maybe he's camping. He's got herds with him and stuff like that. He's sort of nomadic. Uh, but then a famine strikes the land. There's like a huge drought in the area. And Abram uh, takes his people and goes to Egypt. So he's in the promised land. Famine hits, and he has to go to Egypt, which is uh, the fertile Nile Valley. They never really have a famine there so much, very rarely anyway. Uh, how many of you recognize a pattern here? Uh, people get encamped in the promised land, and then they have to go take a sojourn in Egypt. Sound familiar? I'm foreshadowing the story that's going to come in the Bible. But he, he goes to Egypt, uh, where again he's an alien in the land, and, uh, and he has to figure out how to interact with the Egyptians, and so the dude pimps out his wife when he gets there in chapter, chapter uh, 12, uh, which is probably, you know, a kind way to say it. Uh, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, this is the woman that would eventually be known as Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live, right? You're so hot, the Egyptians are going to kill me in order to take you, because that's how it works in Egypt, evidently. So here, say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And when Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. He called it. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. And he treated Abram well for her sake. I'm not liking how this is developing. That doesn't sound right to me. Say amen if, if you're with me on that. It's a, it's a strange trip, right off the bat. Abram doesn't know how to do this. He doesn't know how to do this. 
Uh, incidentally, uh, Sarah is his sister, his half-sister, same father, different mother. We just won't comment on that today. Um, so essentially, he pimps out his wife, and he's, he gets a lot of goodies. You know, he gets blessed. He pursues blessing in a way, but he does it in a fashion that may have been culturally appropriate where he comes from. But, you know, we know, reading it thousands of years later, yeah, it's probably not the sort of blessing God had in mind. Abram eventually learns a bit from this experience, but doesn't start well. The Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Essentially, God makes everybody in Pharaoh's household sick. Pharaoh's like, dude, what's, what's up with this? And then it comes out, well, the reason God is punishing you all is because uh, you brought another man's wife into your house. And Pharaoh sort of, oh, I didn't know, uh, and gives Sarah back to Abram. And the situation is rectified, but not one of the bright spots. Uh, in in the story of of Abram's life. Um, When you forget who you are, when you don't quite understand who God made you to be, if you don't quite understand faith, if you give up on faith and try to get really clever about things, then the world pays the price. Pharaoh paid the price for this. He got sick. Remember, Abram is designed to be a blessing to all peoples. And when Abram forgets what he's about or doesn't understand it, all peoples suffer. I imagine Sarah suffered as well, but it's interesting, you know. He sort of aborts his mission to be a blessing uh, to the world. And the world pays the price. When we forget who we are with God, it's not just us who pays. The world pays. When the church fails to be the church, the world, the whole world suffers. Uh, The story goes on a little bit. In in chapter uh, 14, uh, there's some interaction with uh, the tribes that are in the land. Abram and Lot, his nephew, have sort of separated their herds and household because they're going well. Things are going well and they're prospering. Uh, But uh, Lot sort of gets embroiled in some local politics and gets captured uh, by some... uh, some tribes, uh, some rulers, uh, and Abram uh, takes his household and goes and rescues Lot. There's this really uh, intense uh, military moment. Abram is crafty and managed to rescue, manages to rescue his, his nephew, and then they, they all come back to, uh, to where they're camping uh, in the area around uh, Jerusalem, as it turns out. And then you get this weird story in the middle of Genesis 14, which doesn't make sense unless you appreciate Genesis 1 through 11. After Abram returned from defeating uh, Kedorlaomer, that was the name of the king, and the other kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And then Melchizedek, king of Salem, Salem, Jerusalem, basically the king of the area that we now call Jerusalem, he also comes out, this, this, this character Melchizedek. We haven't heard anything about him up till now, but Melchizedek, the king of Salem, comes out, and he brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, El Elyon, is, uh, is what it says in, in Hebrew. And he blessed Abram, saying, 
Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. Melchizedek, we know nothing about him, but he's a priest of God. I mean, our God, the guy, the, the one true God. There was, a, there was a tradition in the land of Canaan, in the promised land, of the, uh, the Lord Most High or the one true Sky Lord. I mean, they, they had a memory of God. The problem is they just had lots of other gods as well. That memory had drifted and twisted and, and become merged with ancestor worship and stuff like that. So there were many, many gods. We went through that last week in the sermon. But there are still people who are desperately trying to worship the one God, the creator of heaven and earth, the truth. And this guy Melchizedek was probably a king and a priest dedicated to remembering the one true God. He's heard that Abraham is into this God as well. When Abram comes back uh, from kicking butt and all the other kings, Melchizedek comes out and he says, yes, way to go, Abram. I bless you. Uh, I bring out some bread and wine. Uh, we need to hang out. We need to fellowship. We need to have a little communion uh, together. Um, I like, I like this story because it just testifies that God has always been global. You know, God has never been the product of, of the Jewish tradition or the Christian tradition. God is true, and some people preserve the memory of that truth, and some people have not. That's the story that the Bible tells us. Um, there's always testimonies of God in various places around the world, testimonies about God. And then after they fellowship a little bit, Abram gives this guy Melchizedek a tenth of everything. He's a priest. He says, you know, here, here's my tithe to your church, essentially. I want to honor you as well because we God people need to hang together. Uh, we can do this. It's kind of what's going on here. That's my read of it anyway. Uh, the king of Sodom... Uh, which is a city of an entirely different religious tradition, more about them later, uh, also offers to reward Abraham, but Abraham says, no, thank you, uh, lest it be said that Sodom made me rich. Uh, I'm just going to hang uh, with my own faith journey. Thank you very much. God is never captured by one religious tradition. You know, God has always been global. Some people do a better job of remembering him and pursuing him than other people do. Chapter 15, Abram's kind of exhausted uh, existing in this land of violent tribes and stuff like that. Uh, he's just had to risk his life and his people by rescuing Lot. And in chapter 15, uh, the Lord comes to Abram and basically, you know, refreshes him and says hey, I'm, I'm still with you. I still have a covenant with you. And Abram complains to God and says, well, great, you know, you're blessing me, but I seem to recall about how I'm going to become a great people. Have you noticed, God, that I don't even have a child yet? I, I don't have an heir. I don't have a son. In those days, your heir had to be male in that culture. So, you know, my servant, my, my head butler is going to take everything that I've developed when I die, um, and I'm getting a little bit older, Abram complains. So God promises him a son. He says, no, no, I'm going to give you a son. Your butler is not going to be your heir. Um, your family uh, will, will be heir uh, to what you have amassed in this world. 
Um, it was a very important thing in that culture uh, to have children that you pass things on to. God promises a son. But the promise <laughs> ends up being quite a process. And a huge chunk of the story of Abram and Sarah is a story about the promise that God gave to them, the promise of a son and what that's going to mean from the world. In chapter 16, Sarai, the wife, pimps out her maid. Are you beginning to see a pattern here? Uh, her, her maid servant is named Hagar, uh, and she uh, was uh, from Egypt. Was it Egyptian handmaiding? And, and Sarah's like, all right, all right, God has told you, Abram, that you're going to have a son, and this guy is going to inherit everything that, that we've developed. Uh, that's fantastic, but I don't see it working out. So here's an idea. I have a maid named Hagar. I'm going to give you my maid. You're going to sleep with her. You're going to impregnate her, and then she's going to have a son, and that's how we will make this promise happen. She was too clever, right? She tried to figure it out herself, uh, and Abram uh, listens to this idea. So, so wife, you're going to give me uh, a younger woman to sleep with or to impregnate. Yes. I will take the deal. And that's all that we will comment about that. Abram sleeps with Hagar, and indeed, she becomes pregnant. So Sarah's plan is working, but then Hagar gets uppity and starts speaking back to her mistress, Sarai, and sort of starts to, you know, get cocky around the house because she's the one with the baby. She feels really important about that. And then Sarah gets really mad at Hagar's attitude, and so she says to Abram, this is all your fault. <laughs> Family dynamics. Family dynamics. Uh, and she starts mistreating Hagar, and Hagar uh, runs out uh, in runs away uh, from her. God eventually meets up with Hagar and says, no, no, go back. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be fine. But this is a messed up family. They, they messed up the process, and it's a messed up family. And that would become a, a theme in, like, the whole Old Testament. A bunch of messed up families trying to do righteous things. Somebody say, uh, witness. Yeah, I know what that is, is like. In chapter 17, Abram is 99 years old by this time. He's getting a little long in the tooth. Uh, Sarah is somewhere around 10 years younger than he is, so she's no spring chicken herself. Uh, God gives Abraham uh, this little ceremony that he and his people are, are supposed to go through, at least uh, the men and the boys. He gives them the covenant of circumcision. So God basically says, you're going to be my people in one way. Uh, that we're going to set yourself apart is that you're going to get circumcised. We're going to cut off your foreskins. Abraham is 99 years old when he gets his foreskin cut off. I just, I don't know, the whole thing just makes me wince a little bit, but there you have it. It's as if God was saying, no, no, I need, I know, I know you're getting old, but I need to reaffirm to you that we're still in this together, and I'm going to give you this little ritual to set you apart even a little bit more from the people in the land. Uh, so that's where that came from. But at the same time, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Say, you're 99. You don't have um, a kid through Sarah yet, but you will. You will. Uh, so I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham, father of many. And then Sarai goes from Sarai to Sarah, which means a princess or mother of many. 
So God is kind of reaffirming the process, even though Abram and Sarah are doing all sorts of screwy, screwy things to get, uh, to get in the way, uh, to mess it up. Uh, Hagar has had a child, Ishmael, but they've basically been told, no, he's not, he's not the promised heir. He's 13 when he gets circumcised. It's too late for God's promise to Abraham to work out. It's too late for Abraham and Sarah to have a son. But God acts as if he doesn't know that. Faith. Faith. Faith needs to get tested. In chapter 18, three men, three angels, they're called, visit Abram and Sarah uh, one day. There are three men, but they are referred to in the singular. They are called the Lord, which is another very weird picture of the triune God or the Trinity. It kind of shows up in the Old Testament. There's not a, a lot of commentary on it. It's just kind of there. It's just kind of one of those mysterious things, like some literary foreshadowing in, in, in the story. Uh, but these three angels kind of become important. Uh, the Lord uh, in, in a... Uh, through uh, these angels, basically says uh, to, to Abram and Sarah, by this time next year, Sarah's going to have the child. And Sarah laughs and says, yeah, right. Um, and then she kind of gets called out on it. Uh, of course, the story, uh, the prediction comes true. Uh, and then a couple of the guys uh, go off to visit the city of Sodom because evidently these angels are on a mission to investigate the sin of Sodom. Um, and uh, that's how we get uh, the terrible story of the destruction of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abram, hearing that the angels are going to go to Sodom and investigate whether it is as sinful as they have heard, he freaks out a little bit and he begins to intercede for Sodom. And some of you know this story. He says to the angels, hey, you know, what if there are a bunch of righteous people in Sodom? What if you, what if you find, you know, not everybody, but just some people there are righteous. Will you destroy the city? And they said, no, no, no. If, if there are a bunch of righteous people there, we won't. And then Abraham basically whittles them down. You know, what if there are only 30 righteous people? What if there are only 20 righteous people? And then at the very end, he says, don't get mad at me, but let me ask you a question. If, if in the whole city you only find 10 righteous people, will you spare the city on account of those 10 people? And the angels say, yeah, sure, I'll spare them for 10 people, 10 righteous people. I value them so much that I will spare entire cities for them. Blessed to be a blessing. When you're righteous with God, the entire city benefits from your relationship with the Lord. And Abram says, okay, I'll stop there. I will take 10. Thank you very much. Why did Abram do that? Well, it turns out that his nephew Lot and his household, is, they're living in Sodom. So I think probably Abram, Abraham was thinking about his family. It's like, whew, good, because I know they're trying to do right, and I don't want to see them wiped out uh, in the judgment of the Lord against Sodom. Sodom had a terrible reputation. We don't know everything that was going on there, but they mistreated the poor, and they had an incredible amount of, of uh, sexual deviance and violence, and we come to read about rape gangs marauding in the city and stuff like that. I mean, it's just a very, very nasty place, evidently. And so in chapter 19, we get the terrible story of Lot uh, and he sits at the gates of the city, and he sees at least two of the angels. They've split up two of the angels walking into the city, and Lot immediately invites them into his home, uh, apparently because he didn't want them to walk around the city. He knew what would happen to them. He, he was not proud of his city. He said, come to my household and let me protect you. So Lot is trying to do the right thing, uh, but it doesn't go well. 
basically a rape gang shows up at the house and, and they say to Lot, uh, send out the two men who are staying with you because we want to we wanna spend the night raping them. Not a nice place. Not a nice place. Uh, and the story kind of goes downhill from there. Basically, they say to Lot and his family, run away, run away, and if you leave the city and leave everything behind, you'll be spared, but this city is going down. This city is going down. You get the story of the destruction of Sodom and, and Gomorrah. Um, everybody in Lot's household survives except for Lot's wife who at some critical moment looked back toward the city, longed for what she had left behind evidently. And the story says, turned into a pillar of salt as a result. I don't know exactly what that means. Um, whether God just like turned her into salt at that moment for some reason or whether somehow in the process of her longing, turning back, she got separated, she died, and she turned to dust, she turned to powder in the desert, something. I don't know exactly, but you don't turn back. You don't turn back is the moral of that story. I think all of that is just basically uh, is one of those iconic stories about how we relate to the world and how we deal with evil. And sometimes the evil in the world costs us Sometimes we can escape it, but we have to escape it with a no-holds-barred attitude. You know, we can't turn back. There is, on people who are journeying by faith, there's always a push and pull, isn't there? Jesus would summarize it this way eventually. He would say, you have to be in the world, but not of the world. Somehow you have to live in the midst of depravity and evil and destruction, but be different. This attitude of difference, this capacity to be different is an important to be different is an important element on any faith journey. And this is kind of how we start learning by that in the middle chapters of, of Genesis. Well, in chapter 21, the child is finally born, the promised child, Isaac, he's named, laughter. Um, God has turned Sarah's bitter laughter into joyful laughter. Lovely little story. Uh, Hagar and her son Ishmael are sent away from the household at that point. Uh, because Ishmael begins to mock the new baby. Uh, there's some strife there, mixed families. You know how it goes, guys. And Hagar and Ishmael are, are basically kicked out of the household. But God says, don't worry, I'll take care of them. And Ishmael basically gets blessed. He becomes a great people. He becomes the father of all, uh, we would call them the Arab peoples today. But we can trace his lineage down through the generations as well. Every, Abraham does become the father of, of many nations, many nations. Of course, Isaac and his descendants would become the people that we today refer to as, as the Jews. No sooner has Isaac been born in the stories, we move one chapter to chapter 22, and then there is an awesome test. There is an awesome test. And the story of Abraham begins to be summed up, begins to close down now. After Isaac is born, he's a child, he's walking around, and God calls out to Abraham and, and says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac to me. I want you to literally kill him on an altar and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now, this is fascinating. This is fascinating. One of the things that characterized the worship practices in the land of Canaan was human sacrifice, and particularly the sacrifice of children. A lot of the dominant gods, the pagan gods of Canaan, were appeased 
uh, only through basically sacrificing babies, hundreds and hundreds of babies. Uh, and that practice would continue. You can trace it around the world. But that's one of the chief reasons, if you read, you know, the whole book, one of the chief reasons that God uh, was angry at the people of Canaan to begin with. They had drifted not just into spiritual confusion, but they had developed religious practices that involved just atrocities, a lot of sexual atrocities and some violent atrocities. It was kind of built around killing babies, killing children in order to appease God. And so God comes to Abraham and in just his, this very strange provocative way says, all right, all right, they're all willing to sacrifice their kids to their gods in order to be blessed. Are you willing to sacrifice your kid to me? And you can kind of, kind of, kind of appreciate what God is up to in context. You know, he says, you know, the world will sacrifice to get ahead. Will you sacrifice to me to get the blessings that I have in store for you? And Abram says, yes. And there's a lot of speculation as to why he said yes, you know, because he knew his God was supposed to be different. But he says yes. Later on in the Bible, some of, of the New Testament authors would speculate that Abraham uh, believed that he would kill Isaac, but then God would resurrect Isaac. I don't know exactly what was going through his head, but that may well be it. But in any event, Abraham bundles up Isaac one morning, doesn't tell Sarah what he's up to, um, but takes off up a mountain uh, in the area around uh, Jerusalem. Some speculate that it was indeed the same mountain on which Christ would ultimately be sacrificed. You may already know the story. Uh, they get up there. Uh, Abram starts building the, the altar, which was basically a stack of firewood. And Isaac says to him, uh, Dad, I see we got, you know, firewood and stuff like that. You're building an altar to make a sacrifice. But where's the, where's the sheep that we're going to sacrifice? And Abram says to Isaac in a line that would haunt human history forever, don't worry, son. God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Thousands of years later, Christians would come to understand the import of that line. God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. But that story takes thousands of years to tell. So let's just... Put it in parentheses for right now. As the story works out practically, Abram ties up Isaac, puts him on the altar. We don't, we're not told what's going through Isaac's uh, mind at this point. Abraham takes the knife and is about to slit his son's throat, and the Lord calls out to him again and says, stop it. No, no, no. Shh, shh, shh. It was just a test. It was just a test. Put down the knife. Take Isaac down from the altar. Of course, God's not into human sacrifice, as it's turned out. It was just that Abram needed to have the willingness to sacrifice what was most precious for him. Uh, a few minutes later, uh, they find, curiously enough, uh, a ram has become tangled in a nearby bush. They take the ram and they sacrifice the ram. So God does provide uh, a sheep uh, in the moment. And they trundle back to their, to their camp, to their household. Um, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. 
one of the things I love so dearly uh, about, about the Bible, when you read it as a whole book, is the way in which it all eventually makes sense, but you couldn't have predicted how it makes sense, right? On the same mountaintop, you know, God says to Abram, are you willing to sacrifice your child to me like all the other people do? In a culture in which people are like, here, take my child as long as you bless me. God says, how about you, Abraham? And then at the last moment, God says, no, I'm not that kind of God. People think that you need to sacrifice your children uh, to appease God. Well, I'm the God who sacrifices my child to bless you. Completely inverted. But that story, again, takes thousands of years to tell. The Bible is a story told over literally hundreds of generations, right? There is no way it could have been faked. There's no way that could have been faked, that the story of Abraham and Isaac finds its completion in the sacrifice of Jesus on the same mountain thousands of years later. Who could have faked that? Right? It, the Bible's true. There's no way that this document could have been imagined by a nomadic tribe in the Middle East in, you know, 2000 B.C., 1500 B.C., there's nothing like it. There's nothing like Scripture. Faith gets tested. When God makes a promise to you, that promise is a process. How many of you have found that to be true in your life? When God makes a promise to you, that promise is a testing process. Why? Because it's about trust. Faith is always a journey. It's always about trust. After the story of Abraham, uh, the Bible settles into the story of the patriarchs, and ultimately it tells the story not just of what it takes to develop a man or a couple or one family into people of faith. It tells the story of what it takes to develop an entire people of faith, an entire tribe of faith, eventually an entire nation of faith. And the story sort of expands that way. And then the story goes from one man to one family to a whole nation of faith to taking that faith to the ends of the earth. But it takes thousands of years to tell that story. But in the, in the story of Abraham, we can see the seeds of where it's going to go. Here are some takeaways, and we'll end with this. According to the Bible, life is all about how you walk out your faith. There is no faith without a faith journey. There is no faith without a process of adventure and testing. It's not trust until it involves risk. It's not trust until it involves sacrifice. Sometimes it's risk of violence. Sometimes it's costliness materially. Sometimes it's costliness relationally. There is no trust unless there is adventure and risk. God calls us to purpose and trust. He calls us to trust and purpose. That's the deal. When God shows up in a life, this is what he says. Come on. Come on. Literally and metaphorically. There's come on, which is encouragement, and there's come on. This is going to be a journey. That's what God says when he shows up. You might have to change a lot in your life to come along with God, as Abraham did. But if you don't go on the journey... You won't understand God very much, and you'll miss the blessing. 
pastoral subpoint. The life of faith by design is filled with tests. It's filled with temptations. It will make you feel like an alien. It is supposed to be a challenge. It is supposed to be challenging. Write it down. Tattoo it on your forehead so you see it in the mirror in the morning. It's supposed to be challenging. That's what makes it faith. And hear this. If God promises something to you, it's still God's promise to you. It's not your promise. (laughs) When God promises something to you, it's still a test of faith. This might seem weird. It might seem that when God tells you that you're going to be blessed, that you can just sit back on the couch and rest. But it has never been that way. It has never been that way. And that's about the first thing we learn about faith journeys in the Bible. I think I want this statement to be true for us at Blue Water Mission. I think this is a phrase that we could put on a t-shirt someday. The journey of faith is a strange trip. What do you say to that? There you go. Let's try it one more time. The journey of faith is a strange trip. Come on. Let's pray. So this is how we were born, Lord. We were born in the story of this original man of faith who went on a journey, a strange trip. A trip that you have planned for people to take uh, for literally a millennia. I pray, Lord, that you would enter into our lives initially or repeatedly and reaffirm the journey. Reaffirm what you have in mind. I pray for those this morning especially who feel like uh, it's too confusing or it's too late. I think the Lord would say to you this morning, you know, it's supposed to be challenging. That's the nature of faith. It's supposed to be filled with uncertainty. It's supposed to be filled with opposition. You're supposed to wonder what God is up to. That's all part of it. But we persist. In Jesus' name, we persist. Come on.